Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And you guys, today I'm so excited because I was able to interview Dr. Howard Lux, and he is the guest for today's podcast. If you're on Twitter, you are probably very well familiar with Dr. Lux. If not, here's a little bit more about him. He is a patient-centric orthopedic surgeon who has been in clinical practice for 20 years. Dr. Lux utilizes his passion for patient engagement and his expertise in medicine and social media to educate a global audience through his website, Twitter, Facebook page, and YouTube channel. He serves as a consultant, board member, and advisor to many companies in the mobile health, online health platform, and medical decision-making startup spaces. He served on the external advisory board of the Mayo Clinic for Social Media, a recognized leader in this space. He is an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Westchester and Dutchess counties in New York. He specializes in the management of complex knee and shoulder injuries with a focus on ACL injuries, patella dislocations, and shoulder instability. As an early adopter of Twitter, Dr. Lux also runs a blog with more than 100,000 unique monthly viewers, a Facebook page, YouTube channel, and a personal site to educate, interact, and engage a worldwide audience. And you can get to all of those spaces with one click by going to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, and it's in the show notes for this particular episode. So what are we talking about in this episode? We're talking about knee osteoarthritis, which is common and will probably become even more prevalent in the coming years as the baby boomers continue to age. So in this episode, we discuss what is knee osteoarthritis and how is it diagnosed, modifiable risk factors for developing knee osteoarthritis, indications for a total knee replacement, the importance of managing expectations for good patient outcomes, how to strengthen the physician-therapist relationship for more patient-centric care. This was a great episode, and I guarantee you're going to learn so much, so make sure you're taking notes on this one. A big thanks to Dr. Lux for coming on to the podcast, and everyone enjoy. Have a great week. Hi, Dr. Lux. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this today. My pleasure, Karen. I'm looking forward to it too. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about osteoarthritis. You had a great uh, tweet thread back in, I believe it was the end of June, beginning of July 2019 on osteoarthritis, and I got a lot of positive responses from people. And I really wanted to talk to you a little bit more about osteoarthritis. First thing is what it is and what it isn't. So I will hand it over to you. (laughs) So the reason why I decided to put that thread up was based on um, the fact that I keep hearing uh, people uh, become worried thinking that their body is wearing out and that arthritis is a mechanical process and a wear and tear process. So they're going to stop walking, they're going to stop riding, they're going to stop running, they're going to stop their exercise. So in other words, they're going to increase their risk of dementia, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, and other metabolic disorders 
because they think they're saving the lifespan of their knee. So in order to get across that osteoarthritis is really a biological process um, where the articular cartilage is starting to degenerate uh, for various reasons and that their activity actually, if anything, is beneficial um, is what led me to write that whole series of tweets. Uh, and I followed up with another one a few months later uh, that then started to throw in all the exercise patterns and activities that people can, in fact, pursue, especially with respect to runners. See my, since I seem to attract a lot of runners, I want it to be known that running is not damaging for a knee that's not in virus, doesn't have any significant you know, mechanical issue, or is recovering from a fracture. And when we talk about osteoarthritis, oftentimes people will come to us as physical therapists and they'll say, oh, well, you know, it's bone on bone. That's what the x-ray show, it's bone on bone. So how do you respond to that? And how should a physical therapist respond to the patient in those uh, scenarios? And, and in a way that doesn't undermine the physician that referred them to us, but being consistent with the evidence. Yeah, it's quite a challenge, right? I mean, yeah, the interesting thing I always talk to our residents about is that, you know, I'm 56 now and I'm just starting to get really good at patient interactions and, and discussions and conversations in, in the office, just in time for me to retire. Um, and I talk about the fact that words harm, images harm, and you really can't unsee your MRI or x-ray um, or report. So it all comes back to communication and education. Um, and that's one of the biggest problems in healthcare today, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're RVU driven. Um, you guys are strapped if you're in network. You know, you can't make a living at $40 per hour a clip. Right. Um, and so we're all seeing more people um, in less time. And that really threatens our ability to have a good, actionable, and meaningful conversation with people. Yet it's absolutely critical that we do so. So if I put an x-ray up showing bone-on-bone -bone arthritis, I then immediately enter into a conversation about how you really treat people and not an image. Um, and that even though they're bone on bone, you know, most likely I'm talking to someone who doesn't have severe quality of life limiting knee pain. Um, more often than not, you know, a bone on bone knee that's relatively dry, meaning it doesn't have a significant effusion is really not going to be too terribly pain, painful. You know, the bone itself isn't what hurts. You know, bone marrow edema hurts, synovitis hurts, um, but not the bone itself. So I explain that I run with people that I know have bone on bone arthrosis, yet I explain that I've also replaced knees in those with less severe arthritis because they had severe synovitis or bone marrow lesions that just wouldn't go away. So 
it's important to talk about the fact that the x-ray is only one small part of the overall evaluation and a very small part in determining what the treatment uh, or treatments could be or should be. Um, and that it really, uh, it's their story, it's their history, it's what they're, what they're telling us, and, you know, when it hurts, how often it hurts, and how severe that pain is. That's more important in terms of how we craft our, our treatment plans. And when, you know, I had a patient today actually ask me, well, when, when do you know, as the patient, when do you know that you need to have a joint replacement surgery? And we'll stick with the knee. So when your patients come in and they ask you that question or you talk to them about the possibility of a total knee replacement or a partial knee replacement, what do you say and how, how does the patient know? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and it's one that I'll, I'll get probably 15 times tomorrow in the office. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> So the discussion usually goes as follows. It's, it's you will know, you're going to wake up one day uh, and say, I just can't take this anymore. Um, I've tried X, Y, and Z. I've done my exercises, I've lost weight, I've adjusted my diet, I've tried over-the-counter medications, salves, bombs, ointments, suction cups, tape, uh, and everything else that their friends have told them to try. Uh, and their pain is limiting their quality of life. Um, so that's you know, a very important part of the decision-making process is you have to dive into their goals, right? You can run into a lot of trouble with people between 40 and 65, 40, and even 70, depending on how mm -hmm. active they were. Because you might have someone who's miserable, but it's simply because they can't play singles tennis anymore, right? It's like having someone with shoulder pain in your office because they can't hit a second lob serve as like they used to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that person is going to be really unhappy with the results of surgery. Same with the knee replacement, someone who can't play a second set of tennis but could easily finish you know, a three-set doubles match. Um, so we have to determine uh, when the patient feels that their quality of life has suffered long enough that they wish to move forward, then we need to dive into what their goals are. Um, it should be simply that they want to get through their day without this horrible knee pain. Mm -hmm. um, because if it's anything other than that, uh, they may not be all that satisfied with the end results of the surgery. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a big difference between the person who's having trouble walking from, you know, their bedroom to the bathroom, or like you said, the person who can't get in another set of singles tennis. Correct. There are yeah. very, very huge quality of life differences there. Right. Although that second set of tennis might be disappointing it's much different than not being able to walk a block. Correct. And yeah. we know, okay. you know, both of us know there are a significant number of knee replacement patients who have persistent pain mm -hmm. after surgery and who are not happy with the overall results. 
And many times that might trace back to false expectations. Uh, so it's a really important discussion to have. And we also know there are many different patients out there. You know, there are some who have achiness and pain when they roll out of bed, but by the time they're done with their morning shower, they feel fine. Mm-hmm. Yet those people, some of those people might tell you that they want to have their knee replaced. So again, it's really important to dive deep into the reasons why these people want to move forward and what their goals are. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you for that. And now I just want to go back to one thing when we were talking about osteoarthritis, one thing we didn't talk about were um factors that may lead people to be at risk for osteoarthritis. Do we know what some of those factors are? And if so, are they modifiable? Sure. So first, you know, the the big category now that requires everyone's attention is our metabolism. Um, You know, we are bombarded daily now, especially on Twitter, Uh, with all the ill effects associated with a typical or standard American diet full of ultra-processed foods. Uh, I'm not going to get close to the keto vegan world um, and subdivide it. However, it's really important that people start to uh, read this literature about the dangers of ultra-processed foods, it's very clear that a calorie is not a calorie and that 100 calories of ultra-processed foods versus 100 calories of real food is going to have very different metabolic effects on us. And we're finding that people with high homocysteine levels have a higher incidence of heart disease, cardiometabolic issues, as well as joint-related issues. We're mm-hmm. finding the same with uric acid levels, which mm-hmm. will might correlate with your fructose intake, so high fructose corn syrup. It, we find a correlation with lipid disorders and the prevalence of osteoarthritis. Um, people's weight will certainly have an impact. A lot of people don't know that with each step you take, you're putting you know, five to seven times your body weight across the knee with each step. Um, If you're achieving 10,000 steps a day, you weigh 250 pounds, you have an extra 60 pounds on your knee across 10,000 steps. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of added weight across Mm -hmm. that knee. Now, for those who do not have osteoarthritis already, that might not initiate the process. For those in whom the process has started, and MRI studies on asymptomatic people show that the process has started in the majority of us over 50, then that excess weight and force or stress burden is certainly going to increase the risk of developing a more rapidly progressive arthrosis. Now, by far the most common causes are genetics mm-hmm. um, and, and people with structural issues. So a varus or bodhini or a valgus or knock knee, that will set you up for, uh, 
for unit compartmental changes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, changes in either the medial or the lateral compartments. Um, why we seem to see uh, pretty severe uh, patellofemoral disease in, in some middle-aged women, I'm not exactly sure. Perhaps mm -hmm. it's some degree of un underlying maltracking. Um, but in terms of the modifiable risk factors, without a doubt, our weight, our activity level, it turns out, as we, as we just said, arthritis is less common in runners. Cartilage likes that cyclical loading. Mm -hmm. It likes to be exposed to force in a cyclical manner. Um, I think we hit on many of them. Yeah, and then the only <laughs> other thing I can think of is previous surgeries. So we know like ACL, having an, an ACL surgery or ACL disruption, the majority of those people do develop osteoarthritis later in life, especially if you're, you know, most of them happen when you're younger, usually. True. So you're absolutely correct. So uh, upwards of 50% of people who have had an, an ACL tear will go on to develop arthritic changes. Uh, even having just one hemarthrosis, you know, mm -hmm. blood in your joint elevates your risk of developing osteoarthritis because it changes the chemical milieu that's present in the knee once that has happened. Now you go ahead and you add a mechanical issue such as a meniscus tear mm -hmm. and uh, your risks really start to go up dramatically. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I have seen patients in their 40s, you know, who have had multiple ACL reconstructions on their knees because they were high-level athletes in their younger years. And those are people who, you know, we were talking about the people who can't play tennis versus the ones who are having trouble walking down the street. Those are the people that are having trouble walking down the street. Right. And they know it, but they're doing everything they can to not have the surgery as well. Absolutely. So it's, it's an interesting group. Correct. And they're not harming themselves. Exactly. So I don't care if you're limping. Uh, if you can get away without having your knee replaced, <laughs> you should do so. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> certainly, certainly. I think, you know, oftentimes people will hear, oh, it's knee replacements. They're not that bad. It's not like it was years ago. But I mean, it's not great. Huh. Yeah, so there's, you know, the only surgery without risk is a surgery on somebody else. Yeah, so, you know, true. If yeah. You're, you're assuming, you know, an infection after a knee replacement has a low incidence, right? Mm -hmm. 0.7, 0.8%, but it's a life-altering permanent problem. You know, you, you're, you're going to need one to three operations uh, to try and eradicate that infection. And if it's a nasty bug, it's going to end in an amputation. So, you know, are there a lot of amputations that happen each year because of knee replacement infections? No, but there aren't zero. Um, right. And there are a significant number of people who have persistent pain. Um, now, look, I perform a lot of knee replacements. Um, and I think it's a great operation for the right person. So there are significant upsides to a well-functioning knee replacement. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of people are not going to get infected. However, when you start to push indications and you start to stretch them, uh, if you get into trouble with one of those people, that's an awful place for them to be in. Yeah.
Yeah, no question, no question. And now what I'd like to do is we've got a couple of questions from listeners that uh, some of them are about you in particular and the way that you practice. Others, again, continuing on uh, the osteoarthritis uh, subject. So one was from uh, physical therapist, and they're all from physical therapists. Uh, Gina Kim said, how do you set expectations for patients, especially for active, busy ones that conditions such as osteoarthritis, used frozen shoulder can take months to resolve, or can be something that you're managing, let's say. Because I would say osteoarthritis is something that you're managing. Correct. Uh, And sometimes the frozen shoulders too. Yeah, that's Uh, true. So any any of our patients with these long-term chronic conditions uh, can get into trouble, especially when they're used to being high-level weekend warriors and athletes. Um, the, you know, my goal is to keep that runner running. Um, and most runners, if you sit down and say, look, we don't think that arthritis, uh, we know that arthritis is most likely not caused by running. We really don't think that um, you know, running five miles at a reasonable pace is going to cause your arthritis to worsen more than it already has and more than the normal disease course will worsen it. So we think it's okay for you to keep running. You know, 90% of real runners are going to take that and run with it, so to speak. They are not gonna stop and there's really no reason for them to stop stop, because a runner that stops running is is not a whole person anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really embedded in our psyche. Um, they're very unique, you know, people to deal with. So oftentimes we're seeing a runner with a little swelling after a run, we're seeing them with a little achiness and pain the next day. Perhaps they can't run as fast as they used to, or they have pain going downhill. So they will very readily work with you. Um, so what I will immediately start doing is dive into their their typical week. How many miles are they running? What pace are they running? What zone are they running in? Um, are they hills or are they technical trails? Are they carriage? Are they road? Um, I don't necessarily push people onto trails or onto roads, um, but I might pull them off a technical trail or off mm-hmm. of steep hills. Uh, and I'll try to work with them to craft uh, a workout pattern and running strategy with them that will lead to very much acceptable or tolerable levels of knee pain. Um, And then once they understand the the etiology or the cause of their arthritis and they understand you really didn't do anything wrong and it's not the running that led them to this point, most are okay and most will fight through, again, a, a reasonable level of discomfort in order to allow them to run. Yeah, and I think that's the last thing you said is so important because oftentimes when people have more persistent pain, and I can say this from my own experience, is when, when we, I guess I can say we, I'm part of that group, Oftentimes when we do things and it results in pain, we think that we're causing more damage. And I think it's really important that last point that you made that, hey, listen, you might have a little bit of pain, a little bit of swelling, 
but from what we can tell, we know this isn't doing further damage. It isn't sort of give, uh, creating more wear and tear. And I think right. that's really important to get across to the patient. I agree. I mean, if I start to get stress fractures and stress reactions and bo painful bone marrow edema lesions, you know, I'm going to change but things. That's a different up. story, yeah. Uh, but as I alluded to earlier, you know, imagine a runner who stops running um, out of fear, uh, not because of the level of pain. You know, they're now increasing their risk of any number of chronic diseases, right? Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and heart disease and hypertension and diabetes and on. Um, in the, you know, in the hope that maybe they're going to save their knee. I mean, save their knee from what? So if, if, you know, a lot of them, even if, even if we knew that running caused it, they would sacrifice their knee to keep, you know, their head clear uh, from the benefit that they derive from their, their weekly runs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are a motivated bunch, that's for sure. And, and motivated because, like you said, it's, it's the running. So when you're a runner, it's your running that allows you to do the rest of things in your life. That may be work, it may be dealing with family, it may be dealing with colleagues, it keeps your head clear, it could be meditative. So you're taking all of that away by right. saying, you just have to rest. You don't, you shouldn't run anymore. Correct. Dangerous. Okay. <laughs> Dangerous stuff. So let's go on to another question. Miranda Henry, and, and I think this is a nice question, is how do you see the evolution of the patient-doctor-physiotherapist role in the care of osteoarthritis? Because we know we've got baby boomers getting older. Osteoarthritis is most likely going to be more prevalent. So how do you see that evolution of care from those roles? Sadly, in this environment, I see it dwindling, which is really unfortunate, right? Yeah. Um, because it should be increasing. Um, there should be a direct electronic or otherwise communication between our offices. You know, we both have these five page electronic medical record mm -hmm. nightmares that our offices produced that we faxed to each other, you know, for signatures to send back. Yet it doesn't have much actionable, useful and meaningful information. Um, I have a number of a number of therapists who are my go to people in my region. Um, and, you know, we're on the phone a lot. Um, trying to share details about certain people uh, in terms of progress, yeah, or roadblocks or other issues, and what and why they're sending them back or why they're not. Um, and it, you know, an open channel of communications is just so critical. Uh, and we just have to keep in mind, regardless of how busy and crazy our lives get as healthcare providers, that it really is a patient's life and well-being that's sitting at the end of these phone calls uh, and things that are easily perceived as nuisance irritations. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is worth it in the end uh, to go that extra mile and make that phone call. Yeah, and I think you just answered that. With that, answered the next question is, what do you see as the best way for that PT doctor patient to align themselves for best patient outcomes? Which I think you just answered. 
just having good communication channels and and being able to keep in mind that the patient is at the center. Correct. Yeah. Can't no. forget that. No, that makes perfect sense. So I think you just answered it. And then finally, this is from Mark Rubenstein, said, what or who inspired you in your holistic approach to promoting health, combining traditional orthopedic medicine with sort of lifestyle medicine? Ah, good one. Um, uh, nobody. Uh, me. Um, <laughs> you know, as I alluded to, as I said before, you know, you start to get much better at determining, at talking to people, listening to people, um, asking the right questions. You know, my exam starts when I watch them walk in the hallway. You know, before you sit down on your stool, you know more about that patient um, than half the words they're going to say are going to tell you. Um, and you learn how to craft your messages and craft your, you know, your, your treatment plans accordingly. And you find out that non-surgical management is often really effective. And then you realize, okay, you're 56, you know, what are you doing to change your life? So, you know, probably about six years ago, I started to optimize my own lifestyle for my not only longevity, but health span, right? I want to go to the very end, hopefully running, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then just drop off. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to spend my last 10 years on canes, going to doctor's offices, being hobbled, being frail, etc. So as I started, you know, a lot of the more recent blog posts that I've written, I've just done in an effort to help me learn the topics um, uh, because that's a great way to, to it's a great way to learn right because yeah. I, i'm pulling all these papers and i'm doing all this reading i might as well write it down on on, on my website mm -hmm. and share it um and <clears throat> so it started with my diet then it started with uh sleep um, I read Matthew Walker's book, uh, and then it started to, uh, it was exercise um, and muscle mass and atrophy and sarcopenia and everything mm -hmm. else that I've written about. Uh, and then you start to dive into the metabolic literature and you realize, hey, you know, this is really important for our patients. Um, and that's another motivation to get it up and get it on the website. Mm -hmm. um, and as we all know, it's really hard to change many people's habits, but if they have actionable information, if they have, if they, if they have a thorough understanding of why uh, they need to do this, um, I'm getting a, a lot further with people in terms of committing them to dietary change, lifestyle changes, activity changes than I've ever had uh, in terms of success before in my career. And I think maybe it's just because I'm communicating it better mm -hmm. and perhaps because I'm leaving it up on my website for them afterwards to revisit um, and share it amongst their family. Yeah, and they can kind of take a deeper dive into it after they leave the office and say to themselves, oh, okay, now I think this is making more sense. Because like we've all been to doctors I mean, 
sometimes you go in and you're like, oh man, I really wanted to ask this question and I didn't, or, oh, he said this thing, but I forgot. And so (laughs) to have that backup uh, on your website, I think is probably really helpful. And like you said, is most likely helping you get some greater buy-in from your patients, which I think is fantastic. Um, And I think it's also important to note that when you're writing that you're at least this is what I get from your writing style is it's very relatable and approachable. And right. it's, so it's very, I think, patient forward. You'd be amazed at the comments that I get from editors, uh, editors or publishers or writers through back channels that how unhappy they are with my writing style. I'm like, just, you just have to leave it alone. It, it yeah. just is what it is. Yeah, and if it's relating, if it's relatable to your patient population, great. Correct. Great. All right. So before we wrap up, what are the big takeaways you want people to leave with this uh, discussion today? Yeah. So, yeah, in, in an effort to save your knee, don't throw the rest of your health under the bus. Um, you're not going to save your knee. You can't stop arthritis from progressing. You can't cure it. You're not going to waste your money on $10,000 in stem cells because that isn't going to work. You will know the day that you need your knee replaced um, uh, and hopefully your surgeon or therapist will help you better define what your goals can and should be following a knee replacement. Um, Don't forget how important our entire lifestyle is in shaping how much pain we are going to have, how long we're gonna have that pain, and how long we're gonna suffer with it. Our sleep matters, our diet matters, what we stick in our mouth matters, and our activity levels matter. Um, If you don't optimize for your wellness today, you're you're gonna end up preparing for your illness and frailty later. So there's no better time to get moving. Great advice. And now, last question I ask everyone is knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give yourself as a new, newly minted doctor, a new huh. graduate from medical school? Yeah. Um, you're not as good as you think you are. Um, Ooh, that's good. Right? You, you know, all these young docs on Twitter, I get a kick out of them. You know, they're great. But, and I wasn't any different. Um, you know, the world is far more black and white um, when you're younger uh, than as you get older. Um, but, yeah, pay more attention to your elders. Uh, pay more attention to your patients. You don't always have the right answer. You know, and just be willing to admit sometimes you don't know. Uh, and then look for the person uh, with the uh, the knowledge and experience that who can help you. Great advice. Now, where can people find you if they want to read your blogs and ah, find you on social media? Very important. Just put my name on Google. I think I own the first 10 pages. Um, Perfect. So- and we'll, we'll also have links um, under this episode at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So if you want to get all of Dr. Luck's info, it'll be right on the, on the website here as well. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out. This is a great conversation and I hope you have a great start to your 2020. Thanks, Karen. You too.
And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.